Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to the book of Joshua? Joshua chapter 5. If you're not sure where Joshua is, you can just start at the beginning of your Bible and head to the right, and it's the, the sixth book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and there you'll find Joshua in chapter 5 is where we'll be. Uh, for the past couple of weeks, we've joined together to think on this series, Faithful Living in a Divided World. We've been asking as Christians, how do we live lives that, that honor God in the midst of a world that often seems to be growing more and more fractured? And how do we engage with our family and our friends and even strangers, whether in person or on social media or in any other way, how do we do that in a way that represents Christ well? Uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Dan walked us through James 3, and we saw how we as followers of Jesus are to speak in this divided world, uh, what our words should be like. Then last week, Pastor Michael uh, took us to 1 Thessalonians 4, and we saw how we are to live in this divided world, what our lives should be like. And I would encourage you, if you've missed any of those sermons, to go and listen to them as biblical, practical calls to live like and to represent Jesus in this world that is full of division. As I listened to God's word and I was challenged by it over those two Sundays, I was reminded too that, that the way we speak and the way that we live both flow from the people that we are. Our words and our, our lives are the overflow of our identity and what we understand about ourselves and as we talk about faithful living in a divided world, we are assuming that we are people of faith who are striving to live by faith, that we're seeking to engage the world as Christians first and foremost. However, one problem with all the division and the debate that we encounter is that it can separate us into camps and it can divide us into groups that then threaten to become our core identity, so much so that we forget or we even forsake our identity as followers of Jesus. We can find ourselves defining who we are by the positions that we hold on various issues rather than by our position in Christ as children of God. We can start to identify ourselves with names or, or titles or affiliations other than Christian. And suddenly and, and subtly, we begin to live from a reality or a, a way of, of thinking that is less foundational than our identity in Christ. However, faithful living in a divided world means that we are living, first and foremost, by faith. That we are allowing our trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ to tell us what is true and right and of first importance, and therefore how we should speak and live in this world. In the Old Testament book of Joshua, the people of Israel, the people that God had chosen to represent him in this world, were entering into the land of promise, the land of Canaan. But it was a land filled with people that did not know or follow the God that they served. Surely there was division already in the land of Canaan before the Israelites arrived, but as the Israelites stepped across the Jordan River, they were in fact causing a division all their own. A division suddenly between God's people, the people whom, God, whom Yahweh had chosen to live in and possess this land that had been promised to Abraham, and the people of the land. 
And it's this, this division between the people of God and the people of the world that is the most fundamental division that exists in this world. And therefore, I want us to look at Joshua chapter 5 this morning in the hopes that we can see how this, see in this account how God reminds his people of who they truly are so that they can walk before him into the world in a way that glorifies him. And in seeing him remind Israel of their identity as his people in a hostile world, we too can remember our core bedrock foundational identity as children of God and live with that understanding of ourselves always before our eyes. I want to summarize the the call of this chapter like this. Remember who God is and live as those who belong to him. I think that's what Joshua 5 is saying to us this morning. Remember who God is and live as those who belong to him. Paul tells us in in Romans 12 to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. And he says in Ephesians 4, in some verses that Grace Fellowship is going to start looking at next Sunday, Lord willing, that we are to put off the old self and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and then put on the new self. Both of these passages reveal that to change our behavior, we must change our, our thinking. And one way to renew our minds so that we might live faithfully as children of God in our divided world is to remember who God is and live as those who belong to him. Let me be clear. This is not the power of positive thinking. It's the power of godly, truth-filled thinking. And it is this truthful thinking that God leads his people into in Joshua chapter 5. Like Israel standing in in the midst of Canaan, we... Two, need this reminder if we're going to live faithfully and by faith in our world. As we walk into our workplaces, as very soon many of you walk into your schools, as we engage in discussions with family and friends, as we interact with people throughout our days, remembering who God is and choosing to live as those who belong to him is a key to representing him and glorifying him as people of faith in this divided world. So, Look with me at Joshua chapter 5 and hear God's word in these 15 verses. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haaraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they came out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So... 
It was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place was called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The book of Joshua opens with these words. Excuse me. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, I got something in my throat. Excuse me. I'm good. You don't have to do it, Dan. I know where he's going. After the death of Moses, this is how Joshua opens the book of Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. As you read the Old Testament, it's hard to overestimate the significance of Moses' leadership over Israel. After being called by God as God spoke out of a burning bush, he, uh, with his brother Aaron by his side, was the one who confronted Pharaoh and pronounced all 10 plagues. He's the one who helped to institute the Passover meal and then led the people out of Egypt. It was Moses, think about this, who held his staff over the Red Sea so that Israel could cross over, and it was Moses who removed his staff so that Pharaoh and his army were destroyed. It was Moses who came down from Mount Sinai with the commandments of God. It was Moses who called the people to assemble the tabernacle where the Lord would dwell, and it was Moses who talked with God face to face as a man talks to his friend. And the list could go on and on. And yet, even Moses could not lead the people into the promised land of Canaan. After the, the 12 spies, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, returned with a bad report they, that discouraged the people and caused them not to trust God, that, not trust that God could lead them into victory, Moses wrestled with God's people then as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And because of his anger, he was kept from entering into the land along with the entire generation that had rebelled against the Lord. Despite his shortcomings, though, surely the death of Moses was 
unsettling to God's people. It happens at the moment that they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan and fight. And Moses is, uh, in Moses' place now, we find this guy, Joshua, who wasn't new, but he was new. Can you imagine trying to fill Moses' sandals? What would it be like to follow a man who had done everything that Moses had done, who had walked with Israel through all the significant events of the previous 40 years? Surely the entire nation, including probably Joshua himself, was wondering if he could in fact lead God's people into the promised land, this land filled with enemies and literal giants. In fact, I think the first part of the the book of Joshua seems to be asking and answering the same question of, of whether or not Joshua could lead God's people. But it answers that question not by showing that Joshua was a great leader. Rather, the book shows that as God was with Moses, so he would be with Joshua. God's people were shown that their concern did not need to be with the skill of their leader, but with whether or not God was with them. And so we find stated over and over in chapter one that God would be with Joshua as he was with Moses. And then as a sort of final vote of confidence, God called Joshua to to lead the people across the Jordan River, not on rafts, but by a parting of the Jordan River. And they went into the land of promise. And this whole thing echoes the crossing of the Red Sea that, that Moses had led the people through. And the result of God's affirmation and of this miraculous event are just what God designed them to be. Joshua 4.14 says, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. The effect of all of this was not only on the people of Israel but it was also on the inhabitants of Canaan. Did you catch that? In verse one of chapter five, it says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. What caused their hearts to melt? The strength of Israel? The greatness of Joshua? No, because they saw what the Lord had done. Now, if you are an Israelite and you're seeking to conquer the land of Canaan, could you ask for a better start to your conquest? Your new leader is seen to be carried along by God in the same way that the man before him had, and your enemies are completely sapped of all of their courage and their strength. In fact, it seems as if the tables have completely turned. You look back in the book of Numbers and it's the Israelites who are weeping with fear because of the Canaanites, but now the hearts of the Canaanites are melting before the Israelites. So now, now is the, this is the time to strike. Now is the moment to march into Jericho and crush all of your enemies. And so we read in Joshua 5, 2, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, go and fight against Jericho and crush all your enemies. That's not what it says, is it? What's it say? At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. What in the world is God doing? In a moment when they had the psychological edge on their opponents, God takes his entire army, 
which it's hard to calculate, but it would include at the very least every man 40 years and younger. And he commands all of them to be circumcised. He takes his people at the peak of their strength, at the peak of their confidence, and he physically weakens them. We're told in verse eight that they had to stay in the camp and rest and be healed. They couldn't fight. You might be reminded of the story in Genesis 34 where Simeon and Levi trick their enemies into being circumcised so that they can then brutally murder them while they are recovering. And Israel is now put in the same exact weak and vulnerable position within the land, nonetheless. I I mean, my question is, if this was the plan all along, then why didn't God command them to do this while they're on the other side of the Jordan? Why does he bring them into the land and then tell them to be circumcised. That makes sense. Well, here's at least part of what's happening. We begin to see that God didn't simply need to reveal that he was with his people, that he was with Joshua as he was with Moses, but he needs his people to ask themselves, are we with the Lord? He's asking them an identity question. Who are we? And if if we are God's people, then who is God? They'd wandered in the wilderness for a long time. They've lost an entire generation. And they need some deep reminders of what it means to be God's people and of who God is. So the Lord comes and he doesn't send them straight into battle. Rather, he reinstitutes two of the key signs and celebrations that he had given to his people. Two key practices that they had in fact neglected for nearly 40 years. How might it affect you if you stopped certain celebrations? Imagine it's the fourth Thursday in November and you decide no Thanksgiving, no turkey, no parade, no football, no family gathered around the table. Or what if you're someone who just loves Christmas but you decide this year we're taking a break. You do the same thing next year and you do the same thing next year and so on for 40 years years. Maybe we could go beyond holidays. What if we thought about something as simple as attending church? Maybe you've even had seasons where you stopped coming to Sunday services. Maybe you're here today and you're coming out of one of those seasons. But having experienced it or not, just think about the breaking off of meaningful routines, how it redefines who you are and how returning to those things might also redefine you. We see first here in Joshua 5 that God reminds his people who they are by calling them to again commit themselves to the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And in this, he says to them first, remember that you belong to the God who keeps his promises. Remember that you belong to the God who keeps every single one of his promises. Back in Genesis 17, God God called Abraham. He said, walk before me and be blameless. He tells Abraham, live in this world in a way that represents me to the nations around you. And then, right after that, he tells Abraham that the sign of his separation from the world and his participation in the covenant that God made to him was that he and every male was to be circumcised. Now, I read that passage and said circumcision more than you've heard probably in the past year, right? And so if this seems strange to you, I I get it. But don't forget, remember, we are really far removed from ancient Israel 
We're removed from them historically. We're removed from them geographically. We're removed from them culturally. And this, while it makes little sense to us, was a powerful thing to them, and it made much sense to who they were. And so, uh, and we can learn, right? We can put ourselves uh, into their place and try to understand what this means. So I want to draw out two of the symbols that we can take from circumcision, uh, and they are inclusion and separation. So first, inclusion is, is part of what's being spoken of here. Circumcision was the God-ordained way for his people to say, we are God's. We are part of his covenant promises, and we are hoping in the promise that he made to Abraham. And in fact, there were, there were those outside of ethnic Israel who desired to be brought near and be a part of Israel, and the sign that they were now included was when they were circumcised. The sign itself even reminds them of the hope of a seed, of an offspring from Abraham that would save them. And so each time a child was born, and on the eighth day that child was then circumcised, Israel as a nation renewed their hope that one day a deliverer would come and reign over them with power and love. You might even think in that ceremony, even as they looked at that particular child, they may have wondered, if this is the one, is this the one that's going to save us? Is this our deliverer? So circumcision represents inclusion in God's people, but it also represents separation. To be included in God's people is to be separated from the world. The prophets picked up on the moral and the ethical implications of this when they would call God's people to not simply be circumcised in their flesh, but to be circumcised in their hearts. Both of these ideas come out when the Lord says, in I think a key verse in this passage, Joshua 5, 9, that on the day they were circumcised, God rolled away the reproach of Egypt from them. What a beautiful phrase. God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt. They were owned by Pharaoh. They were forced to listen to him, but God shows his people that he has called them out and separated them from the Egyptians and from every other nation. In taking on the sign of circumcision, they were marking themselves as his. They were announcing that they belonged to the Lord and they were different from everyone else. So the question now is, what does that have to do with us? (laughs) I'm going to let Paul make the connection. This is what he writes in Colossians 2, verses 11 to 15. He writes to followers of Jesus, like you and me. He says, in him, Jesus, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul shows us that the Old Testament shadow of circumcision finds its fulfillment in the new birth of the New Testament and in the sign of baptism that marks us as members of the body of Christ. When when we come to God through faith in Christ, we are included as members of his family and separated from the world. Inclusion 
and separation. And like Israel, God has rolled away our reproach. How? He has made us new people through the work of his son. And he calls us to mark ourselves as his people. How? By being baptized. By being baptized and announcing that our hope is in being united to Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. What a powerful symbol baptism is. I've heard it said that baptism is the way that you wave the flag to say that you're on Jesus' side. I wonder if you've ever done that. It's a good question. In this divided world, have you ever announced clearly just whose side you are on? God gives us this clear first step of obedience that says, I am Christ. I belong to him and I'm separated from the world. It's the first step of obedience that Christ calls us to. And it's a step that shapes who we are as we walk before the world. So with the, with the mark of the new birth on us and the waters of baptism in our story, we, we can enter into a hostile world as those who have been included in God's family and separated from the world. Christian, this is who you are. This is your core identity. Don't forget this reality. Don't neglect the practices that remind you that, that, that remind you that into this divided world, you enter as someone who is included in God's family and separated from the world. Remember that you belong to God and he is a God who keeps every single one of his promises. It was while they were encamped at Gilgal that the Lord reintroduced a second reminder to his people, namely the celebration of the Passover. And in it, he says this, remember that you belong to the God who saves his people. Remember that you belong to the God who saves his people. And in fact, it makes perfect sense that the Passover follows the reinstitution of circumcision because no uncircumcised person was supposed to celebrate the Passover. So having taken up the sign of the covenant in circumcision, they now celebrate the great act of deliverance that they had experienced uh, in deliverance from Egypt. There in the land of Canaan, they ate the Passover meal for the first time since they had done it at the foot of Mount Sinai. Isn't that amazing? That was the last time they celebrated Passover. Maybe you can use your sanctified imagination and see the Israelites in Canaan, surrounded by their enemies, weakened by this rite of circumcision. But what are they doing? They're celebrating. <laughs> They're having a feast to remember the great deliverance that had happened to them decades before. And they're no longer eating manna, we're told, as they had for decades. But they're feasting on the produce of the promised land. And as they walk through this Passover celebration, maybe we can see them in their family units. Maybe you hear a conversation like the one that's described in Exodus 13 where the Passover feast is established. And in Exodus 13, 14, it says this, And when in time to come, your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Can you imagine sitting in Canaan, having your child ask you that, and then responding in that way? By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Maybe in those moments, the lights would begin to come on for everyone. And they'd start to remember that after 40 years of, of wandering, they belonged to the God who saved his people. 
they didn't, sorry, they didn't need a, a psychological edge on their opponents. That's not what they needed. They didn't need physical strength in their army. They only needed the God who could supernaturally conquer Pharaoh's army and could conquer every army in Canaan. So soak this in for a moment because the Bible is amazing. What's the New Testament parallel to circumcision? It's the new birth, specifically the sign of baptism. And what is the New Testament parallel to the Passover? It's the Lord's Supper. It's the two ordinances that we hold to as a Christian church. Right here in Joshua chapter five. (laughs) The night before he was crucified, Jesus took this meal that reminded his people of God's great deliverance of them despite their weakness and he transformed it. He transformed it. It's still a reminder, but it's a reminder of something new now. It's a reminder of his deliverance of us despite our weakness. We take the bread and the cup, and each time we do, we are reminding ourselves through faith in Jesus, we belong to the God who saves his people. The good news of the gospel is not found in our good works. It's not found in our faithfulness. It's not found in our power. It's not found in our ability. It's found in the fact that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, surrounded by our enemies and enemies of God ourselves, that Christ died for us. If my hope is in me, I am sunk. But my hope is in Jesus. It's in his perfect life, his atoning death, because that can save my soul from hell itself, let alone Canaanites. Every time we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are announcing what Christ has done, and we're announcing that that shapes my existence. It shapes my whole identity. It shapes how I live in this world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what defines you. And it's out of who we are as children of God, who keep, children of the God who keeps all of his promises and children of the God who saves his people that we now enter into the world. In, in the light of this identity, we engage our divided culture and we fight the battles in front of us, but we fight them very differently because we remember something. We remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. That's the third thing I want us to remember. Remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. Verses 13 and 15, through 15 probably belong more with chapter 6, uh, but they're a bridge of sorts between these two events. We're taken away from Gilgal to a moment when Joshua is near Jericho. He seems to be by himself. I'm not sure what he's doing. Maybe wandering around and praying and thinking about this great city and what's going to happen. Jericho is the first city that the people of God are going to subdue. And as he's there, he meets this imposing figure with a drawn sword that is ready for battle. (laughs) So he asks the obvious question, are you for us (laughs) or are you for our enemies? Good question. It's the question we've been asking since playing games on the playground in grade school. Whose side are you on? (laughs) Are you on my team? That's how we have been fooled into looking at this world. Are you for us? Are you against us? Well, given how strong this figure looks, Joshua is probably really hoping (laughs) that he says, I'm on your side. But what's his answer? He says, no. (laughs) Or maybe your translation says, neither. 
And then what's he do? He identifies who he is as an explanation. He says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. So if that's true, wouldn't we expect him to say, I'm on your side, Joshua? (laughs) That's what I would expect, but he doesn't. Because the question that Joshua and we need to be asking isn't, is God on our side? The question is, are we on God's side? Now that may seem subtle, but I think it's powerful. Is God on our side? Uh, The better question, am I on God's side? Are we entering into battles, into conversations and discussions, into divided workplaces and schools, into living rooms filled with conflict? Are we doing that listening to cultural warriors or shaking our heads or wagging our fingers at those who disagree with us, assuming the whole time that God is on our side, when in fact we need to walk into the world that is most certainly hostile to us, but we need to walk into the world saying, am I on the Lord's side? Not dividing into into saying, who's on my side? But asking my heart, am I on the Lord's side as I engage this world around me? Joshua suddenly realizes who he's speaking to here. Long story short, it's the angel of the Lord. This is likely what we would call a manifestation of Jesus before his incarnation. This is God. So what does Joshua do? He falls on his face in worship. And he asks a new question. He says, what does my Lord say to his servant? What a great question. It's a better question, isn't it? (laughs) This is the question we come to God with. Lord, I am your servant. What do you want from me? What do you want me to do? No agenda, no preconceived notions, no assumption of sides. Now, what does God say? He says the same thing that he said to Moses at the burning bush. He says, take off your sandals, Joshua. You're on holy ground. And there in the presence of of God himself, I think that all the division, all the battles, all the wars, everything just faded. What's that we sing? The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I think we could camp out here for a long time. But let's say this. Joshua needed to know that God was with him as he was with Moses. He needed to know that. But he also needed to know that it was God who was working, not him. He and the people needed to remember that just as it was God who established the covenant with Abraham by himself and said, I will do this, that God was going to win for them. He needed to know that just as God rescued them out of Egypt in the Passover, that God was the one that was going to deliver them. It was God who was going 
to conquer Canaan. And he was going to do it in his own unique, God-glorifying way. In chapter 6, God's going to explain his strategy for war. And it's this, march around the city every day, and then on the last day, do it more times and blow some trumpets. That's the strategy for war, Joshua. The commander of the Lord's army will do whatever he wants. But we trust him. When we trust that the battle belongs to the Lord, when we listen. I don't know. For me, I, I just think we get so worked up. We get so up in arms about things, so divided, so stressed, so angry. We feel outnumbered. We feel frightened. Why? I think we've forgotten who God is. And we've forgotten that we belong to him. We've forgotten how he works. And that if that's the way he works, then I don't need to. We've, we've failed to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who more than anyone else shows us how to live in a divided world. Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate cannot wrap his mind around a king that doesn't fight back. He, he cannot understand a king who gets repeatedly punched by Roman soldiers. He cannot understand a king that is willing to die. John 18, 33 through 36 says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again. What a, what a scene, isn't this? Pilate and Jesus. And he called Jesus and he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is thinking on a totally different plane from everyone. I've been reading the book of John and, and he keeps telling people, you're thinking earthly. You need to think heavenly. And that's what he's doing right here. Because Jesus wins how? By apparently losing. <laughs> he dies to bring life. He confuses everyone because unlike everyone else, he knows exactly who he is. And he knows exactly what God is doing. He doesn't fight like everyone else. Because he's different than everyone else. And his kingdom is unlike every other kingdom. So here's my question. If we're followers of Jesus, what about us? What do we look like in the world, brothers and sisters? Do we look like everyone else? Do we fight like everyone else? Or are we confusing? <laughs> are we strange. Are we those that, that walk in our own strength or are we those that find ourselves weakened on purpose so that we can trust God more? Are we those who feast while we're surrounded by our enemies? Are we taking off our shoes every day in the presence of a holy God and laying aside our agenda and not worrying about whose side everyone's on, but instead saying, Lord, I'm your servant. What do you want me to do? How can we grow in this attitude? I don't think you'll like my answers because they're not 
flashy. <laughs> you know what they are? Come to church. <laughs> Sounds like a real pastor thing to say, doesn't it? Get baptized. Take the Lord's Supper. Why? Because this is how we remember who we are. We come together to remember and remind one another of who we are. Why am I preaching this sermon? Because we all forgot who we are in the span of a week. (laughs) We have to remember. When you get to the book of, of Judges, you know what the problem is? You can read it in the first chapter. They forgot. They just forgot. And so we have to remember and we come together and, and then every day we just we admit our weakness in the presence of God. We remember that apparently losing could be the path that we're called to, that dying is the path to life. Boy, we are strange people. And boy, we've gotten caught up sometimes in just looking like everyone else. In his song, Citizens, John Guerra closes his lament over our divisive age with these poetic and profound words. I really just want to read two lines, but I have to read more because it's powerful. (laughs) He says, is there a way to love always? Living in enemy hallways, don't know my foes from my friends and don't know my friends anymore. Power has several prizes. Handcuffs can come in all sizes. This is the line. Love has a million disguises, but winning is simply not one. That line has run through my head this week because love doesn't look like winning. As we enter the world, we don't fight the way the world fights. We don't, we don't think about winning the way the world thinks about winning. We, we may not think about winning at all. Rather, we, we come as people who trust that God always keeps his promises. And we come as those who trust a God who always saves his people. We come as those who have faith that God doesn't need to be on our side. We need to be on his side. And we need to trust that he's the commander of his army and his tactics for war are much different than ours. And what's at the core of his tactic for war? Love your enemy. So I would invite you to lay your weapons down in this divisive age and also take your shoes off for a little bit. And maybe just sit in the presence of Jesus, who's the suffering servant. That's holy ground.